I love the church, and I love this church, and I just want to say I'm very honored uh, to be a vehicle uh, to deliver God's word to you this morning, and so it is, it is a joy uh, to worship alongside you, and uh, thank you for being here. So really before we get into our passage today, I want to give you a little bit of insight and explanation <clears throat> into where we are headed both today and really where we will be for quite a while uh, when I have the opportunity to preach. I love to preach, uh, but I'll confess to you, one of the most challenging things for me is deciding what to preach, right? Like the Bible is a big book, and there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And so preaching only every, you know, four to six weeks, and I'll say, hey, uh, Pastor Kevin, is there anything that you want me to preach on? And he says, however the Lord leads, and I go, well, okay, I mean, here we go, it's a big book. And, and it takes quite a while uh, to figure out what to preach. And so after some prayer, some consideration, and some study, I've decided that I'm going to preach through the book of James with you. And so every time that, that you get me, uh, you'll get the book of James, probably for the next five years or until I die or something. And so every, you know, six or eight weeks when I get the opportunity to preach, we're just going to go through the book of James. I'm excited about it. Uh, I'll also confess to you that in my own personal broken heart, <clears throat> there is this temptation to preach the easier passages, right? That's, that's both in content and in style, and that I can have the tendency to avoid what is difficult. And so in preaching through James, you can hold my feet to the fire, and whatever the next passage is, is what we're going to preach. Uh, whether that's difficult stylistically or content-wise, we're just going to work through the book. And so uh, if I say something that you don't like out of James, then it's not my problem, it's in the Bible, you've just got to deal with it. And we're going to go through the difficult passages. And so that's, that's one reason I love preaching through books of the Bible. And so we are going to go through James. And so this morning, I just want to spend some time introducing the book of James, talking about who wrote it, who it was written to, why it was written. Uh, and then we'll spend some time going for, through the first 12 verses or so this morning. So a little bit of background on the book of James. It was written by James who's the half-brother of Jesus. And he was a little bit of a hard-headed late bloomer. So for those of you who potentially grew up in a Christian home and you didn't actually become a Christian until later in life, even though you were exposed to the gospel earlier on, I just want to say, don't feel too bad about yourselves, okay? Because James literally grew up with the Messiah. And he didn't even believe it until after the resurrection, right? It took him a little bit of time. But after James became a Christian, he became a very prominent leader uh, in the Christian world uh, for the church and predominantly with Jewish Christians. So James here is writing um, to, to Jewish Christians, as we'll see in a minute. But one thing I want to point out about James uh, strikes us immediately in chapter 1, verse 1, which says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Don't judge me. I'm just going to be transparent, okay? If I was the half-brother of Jesus and I was writing a letter, 
I think my greeting would have been something more like James, the brother, confidant, helper, born of the same womb as literally the most important person that has ever walked the entire earth, right? And don't lie, because you would have to. I know you would have. In our culture, we can't even see someone half famous without taking a picture with them in the airport and posting it on every social media account to gain a little bit of clout, right? And so if you were the half-brother of Jesus, and if I was the half-brother of Jesus, I don't think we would have started the letter by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What humility. That James could have tried to boast his relationship to Jesus as a half-brother. He knew him. He spent a lot of time with him. Taught him everything he knew. But James here shows incredible humility because James understood when he became a Christian, he learned that it wasn't about him. And guess what? It's not about me. And it's not about you. James understood that it was predominantly about God and about God's glory. And he was just overjoyed to play a small piece as a servant in God's much bigger story. Because it's not about us. And it wasn't about James. Likewise, we should just be overjoyed to play a small piece in a story that's much, much bigger than ours. We also see in verse 1 that he's writing to the 12 dispersed tribes. This is referencing the scattering of Jews known as the diaspora. This was a result of a, really a multitude of shifting powers. The Babylonians take the southern tribes captive. Uh, we see things like Stephen who's martyred in Acts chapter 8. And after this martyrdom, there's an onslaught of persecution to the Jewish Christians. And so they start scattering and they're spread all over the place. Some of them land on their feet in pretty decent circumstances and situations, while others would have landed in much less fortunate circumstances. They would have been uh, poverty-stricken and poor. And so James is writing to all of these Jewish Christians that have been scattered, some in good situations, some in not-so-good situations. So now that we know James, the half-brother of Jesus, he's writing to dispersed Jewish Christians, we can look at some of the purposes of the book. Why do we study the book of James? David Platt's helpful here. He gives us two categories uh, in which why it's helpful to study. This is one of them. It's to examine the relationship between faith and works. When we study the book of James, it is helpful to examine throughout the book the relationship between faith and works. You'll quickly notice as we get into the book that James often uses the word faith, but he often gives commands as well. In the book of James, there's 59 commands in 108 verses. So we have a lot of commands throughout the book of James. And, and because there's a lot of commands and, and because there's this temptation, I want to go ahead at, at the beginning of this, at the onset of this, and just encourage you to resist them to this temptation that pops up in my own heart and I think in all of our hearts. And this is it. A lot of times when we start hearing commands, we say, legalism, that's legalism. 
the, the Bible's not about doing this and doing that. It's just about what you believe. It's not about what we do. It's about what he did. And, and we start saying things like that because we get defensive, right? Legalistic. And what James is saying here is he's not arguing that our salvation is achieved by our good works. We know that our salvation is not based on what we've done, but on what Christ has done on the cross. So he's not arguing for salvation based on these commands. But he's simply saying that it is a little bit about the commands. James is saying, yes, yes, it is about the commands. The point he makes throughout the book is that we are indeed saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by obedience and life change. In fact, very strongly in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, he says that if you don't listen to the word and you don't obey the word, you actually don't have any faith at all. Here James aligns, I think, with what the goal of Christian preaching should be is he aims to encourage Christians by the truth of the gospel, encourage non-Christians to the truth of the gospel, and do it in a way that we distinctly know which category we fall into. The goal is that when you leave here today through the commands of James and every day, you'll know if you're a believer or if you're not a believer. We should preach in that way. And what James says through these commands is our life is the litmus test for if we actually have saving faith. Are you obeying? Are you following Jesus? The commands of Jesus are a great litmus test to see where we are. So be on the lookout as we study the book of James for this connection between faith and works. The second primary reason given by David Platt that we study the book of James is to explore the impact of our faith on life in this city and the world around us. The second reason to explore the impact of our faith on the city and the world around us. As you walked in the doors, if you came through this main entrance through these four years, you walked in the doors, and right on that back wall, you saw a phrase that says, for the gospel, for the city. We put this there because we really believe that when the gospel transform a lot, transforms a life, it transforms a home, and it transforms a workplace and a city. True saving faith should have a tremendous amount of impact on the world around us. James illustrates this by showing us and addressing a variety of very practical issues throughout this book. He talks about how our obedience in faith should have an impact on poverty, on riches, on materialism, on favoritism, on our speech and our pride, our plans, our calendar, our prayers, and so many other things. That our faith, if truly saving faith, impacts our life and the world around us. James argues if we would just really be Christians that obey the commands seriously, our city would really be changed by it. 
And we'll see that all throughout the book. And he begins with these practical things by talking about the idea of trials. How we should handle our trials in faith. That's exactly where we will be today. If you have your Bibles, flip to the book of James, chapter 1. We've already done verse 1, so we're going to go to verse 2. And what you see here is right in verse 2, it's a little bit different than the other New Testament epistles. If you read the beginning of most of the New Testament epistles, they start with something like, I'm so thankful for you, and I, I miss you, and I'm grateful for what God's done in your life, and I long to see you again. But, but James does not play around. Like He, he kind of skips the, the friendly greeting, and James goes straight to an exhortation on what you should be doing. Verse 2, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Consider it a great joy when you experience various trials. So right off the bat, here in verse 2, we see one of those commands that we were talking about earlier. Now when James says consider it a great joy, he's using a command that predominantly addresses how we think. It's important to understand that this command is not primarily about our emotions. It's mostly speaking to and commanding to the way that we think, not how we feel. To be honest, if I'm in the midst of a trial, if I'm in the midst of of grieving something horrendous or the loss of someone... And you come up to me and you say, come on, Stephen, put a smile on. James says, be happy. I'm going to be really tempted to give you a very immediate trial of your own. Like, you know? Like, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying we got to always just put on a happy face. Hey, be joyful and get over it. Kent Hughes reminds us, James is not intending for us to say to one another flippantly, consider it a joy. When life comes crashing down, what he means here is that underneath the difficult emotions that come with grief, each Christian should work towards a conscious embrace of a gospel-centered perspective that that brings joy into the trials that come. What he's saying is we have to be careful to make a deliberate choice to experience joy in the midst of trouble. It's not about how you feel. It's a conscious decision and effort to be joyful when things are difficult. Many of you are aware of a young man named Walker. And this past summer, Walker was struck by lightning. He was on the beach enjoying vacation with his family and lightning struck and he spent some time in the hospital and Walker would never recover on this side of heaven from this incident. He's worshiping with, with God at the throne this morning as we worship here. And throughout this process of his, his being struck by lightning and speaking with his family Something that that they told me time and time again, his parents, as they grieved his loss, is they said, Stephen, we're 
we're choosing joy. We're just choosing joy. We don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know what's going on, but we're, we're going to choose to be joyful. They emphasize this over and over to me and, and to many of you, that in the midst of this trial, in the midst of, of our son who, who should be running cross country right now, we're choosing joy. It doesn't mean they're not grieving. It doesn't mean there's a superfluous, bubbly temperament running about. It just means in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the trouble, they've chosen to have a godly perspective and choose joy. This kind of command, it's not simply about putting on a happy face and pretending that everything's okay. But instead, it's it's finding comfort in the reality that God has a purpose and a plan for the pain. And because of that, in the midst of trials, we can rejoice. Notice the word here, various. Unless you are tempted to check out. James says that we should have joy in various trials. Maybe some of you don't have a big trial right now. Maybe you're kind of on cruise control. But know that from the smallest of annoyances to the greatest of loss, God has a purpose and plan in all of our trials. That's where we find our joy. James goes on in verses 3 and 4 to expound on those purposes. He says this, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So now we see that this command to be joyful in the midst of trials, it's, it's not rooted in some nonsensical idea that we should just put on a happy face and pretend as if life is good. But instead, it's rooted in the ability to look beyond what is hard right now in that moment and just understand God's doing something bigger. Namely, producing in us spiritual Endurance. The world would say, you're crazy. Why would you have joy when life is so hard? And the rationale for our joy and difficulty comes from the reality that all of our trials have spiritual value. All of our trials have spiritual value. They are accomplishing something in us. We have one student in our student ministry here that's had a particularly difficult year. And in fact, his whole family has had a particularly difficult year. And, and it began with the unexpected loss of his father and, and the realization that for the rest of high school, dad won't be there. For the rest of life, dad won't be there. And in trying to process the loss of a, a parent at such a young age. This young man be, began seeing a, a grief counselor, which is a very healthy thing, and, and began confiding in this counselor about how he was feeling and how he was working through the emotions and the loss of his father. Began to trust this counselor and 
just recently found out that this counselor now unexpectedly died of COVID as well. I mean, this kid, he says, why is it that everyone close to me seems to die? What's going on? It's been a hard year. But, but as I've had conversations with him and conversations with his mom, in the midst of that grief and difficulty, there is a deep joy. There is a deep joy. Because I know that, that for this family, God is doing amazing things. That, that for this young man and for his sister and for his mom, there is spiritual endurance being created here. There's grief, of course, but there's joy in the midst of the trials. Because God's got a purpose behind that pain. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing that our God is so good that even the most broken things in us and around us are used for our good, for our endurance, for our spiritual maturity. What kind of a God do we get to worship? That the hardest things in life God twists and uses for our good. It's an amazing thing. If you're a parent, you understand this. I have a three-year-old daughter. And for some time now, she has been set on dressing herself. Which is amazing, right? I mean, go get dressed. Okay, she gets dressed. And for me, whatever she comes out and I'm like, that's fine. We're wearing it. It'll do. So if you see her with me and that's what she's wearing, then you know that's what happened. Just go get dressed. Sure, let's go. But, but right when she started doing this, she would have trouble, right? I mean, you're old. Hopefully, you can all dress yourselves fine. But, but if, if you can remember way, 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 way back, for some of y'all, way back, when, when you were learning to get dressed, it was hard, right? And so, so I'll say, hey, go put your clothes on. And she'll go put her clothes on. And, and I'll hear these, like, grunts and screams and frustrative pats and hits coming from the back of the room. And I'll kind of peek in and go, what's going on, you know? And, and there's like a head through an armhole or two legs through one leg hole or all kinds of twisting and contorting and, you know, trapped in these clothes. And to watch the struggle, to see her try and figure out how to get dressed and what goes where and to pull it through and pull it down and zip it and tie it and all that, it's really tempting to rush in and say, hey, let me help you. Let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. In the midst of her frustration. But what we're learning is that if we rush in, every time our parent, or every time our kids have trouble or hit a speed bump or become frustrated, then our kids will never learn fortitude. They'll never develop. They'll never figure out how to work through hard problems. In the same way, in the same way that parents should allow kids, when it's safe and appropriate, to struggle a little bit, to develop some fortitude and to develop some maturity. I believe God allows us to sit in these struggles for the long-term sake of our own spiritual endurance. 
if we got rescued every time things got hard, how would we ever grow? Then here James outlines for us three specific categories in which we grow through trials. For the next seven verses, we'll we'll talk about them in categories. There's a lot in these verses, uh, but in the midst of them, uh, we're just going to kind of zoom out. And I'm going to give you the big picture categories, and then maybe sometime in the next five years we'll come back and we'll look at them in more detail. Um, but, But here we go. The first one is this. We learn to walk in His wisdom. Through trials, we learn to walk in his wisdom. Verse, verse 5 here, James 1, 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. I think James is generous here by using the word if, if anyone lacks wisdom, because the truth is we all lack wisdom, right? Right? And if you think that you don't lack wisdom, then you really are just lacking wisdom at the idea that you lack wisdom. And so now we've proven that everyone lacks wisdom. One commentator is helpful here. He he helps explain and define this idea of wisdom. He says that it's a combination of knowledge, experience, and perspective. Knowledge, experience, and perspective rooted in God's truth. So when we walk through trials, we realize that we don't know all that's going on. We lack knowledge. We don't know all that's happening. We don't see our situation from every angle, right? We lack perspective. And we don't always have the experience on what to do in the midst of those trials. And so we lack knowledge, perspective, and experience, which culminates to our lack of wisdom. And the combination of these things, it's hard to come by. I'll be honest with you. It's pretty easy for me as the pastor to just stand here on stage and tell you, hey, be joyful in trials. And and it's pretty easy for us, if you're not in a trial, to tell your friend, hey, be joyful in trials. But in the midst of the trial, right, in the midst of the trial, it's a lot harder to have some perspective and some knowledge and some experience. It's a lot harder to see. It's a lot harder to glean that wisdom. That's why when most of us are in the middle of a storm, we typically pray things like, why, God, why me, right? Like, why me? This isn't fair. Why me? It's always me. Why me? Or maybe we pray more urgently, listen, just get me out of this. Take it away. Bring the money. Heal the sickness. Whatever it takes, just get me out of this, God. Just get me out of this. I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. Get me out of this. And what James is saying here is that the better prayer is not why me or get me out of this, but it's, Lord, please increase my wisdom here. Help me understand better what you're doing, why I'm going through this, and how this particular trial can shape me to be more like Jesus. Help me out here, God. Give me wisdom. So in the midst of trials, we learn to rely on his wisdom. Because in this life, you know, we we never will fully understand the blending of joy and trials. Happiness and chaos, that, that, that's an odd blending on this side of heaven that we really will never understand because we're only seeing the underside of the tapestry. 
only after death for the Christian in heaven do I believe God will turn over and show us the canvas. And we go, oh, yeah, that all makes sense. I see what was going on there. I see what you were doing there. All the angles, all the perspectives, the knowledge and the experience there. I see it now. Wow, God, that's beautiful. You really used that. I see it now. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives now to help us gain wisdom in the midst of trials. Ask for it. This is a prayer that God loves to answer. The second thing we learn from wisdom is we learn to rely on his resources. James 1.9 says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. This verse and the following two verses, 10 and 11, they introduce the theme that we see throughout the book of James of poverty and riches. This is something that comes up often. And while most of James's audience here is poor, like I mentioned before, there were some during this scattering that landed on their feet, and they landed quite well. They would have been tempted to depend on their wealth. And so what James is doing here is he's using a paradoxical statement, which is something pretty common to the New Testament. And these statements are helpful because they cause us to pause and think. What is he saying here? So when James says, let the brother of humble circumstances, what he means is poor, right? That's like a nice way to say, like, this man is poor. Someone of humble circumstances. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. What he's saying is if you don't have a lot of money, be encouraged. You have something far greater. You have spiritual significance. Not only that, but know that your final, your financial circumstances, they're leading you into a greater dependence on God. Say so you rejoice in poverty. I mean, I, I've got to really depend on God here because financially I have to. On the other side of the spectrum, he says, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. So James is saying to those that are wealthy, it's a serious temptation to rely on your finances to solve your problems, your own resources. And trials remind us there are a lot of things that money just can't fix. A lot of things that money just can't fix. Then he supports the statement. He says, because he will pass away like a flower of the field, even if you could fix it, he reminds wealthy and highly esteemed people of the transitory nature of these types of things. They don't last. Gone like the flower of a field. And through both of these paradoxical statements, James is illustrating that oftentimes in life, trials have a remarkably leveling effect when it comes to the realm of finances. Right? I mean, cancer is cancer. Doesn't matter what you got. Death is death. Doesn't matter how much money you have. And so we learn through trials not to rely on our own resources, but to trust God, to not put our hope in the things of this earth, but to put our hope in something far greater, which is the third category that James gives us here. 
through trials, we learn to realign with the reward. James 1.12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Again, James is bringing back in the trials, right? If you read this chapter, it's a little bit disjointed because you start with this idea of trials and then he starts talking about wisdom and then he starts talking about poverty and riches and then he goes back to trials, which helps us understand that really the wisdom discussion and the rich and poor discussion, they're all related here to this idea of trials. And he bookends it in verse 12 and says, listen, there's a reward coming. The language he uses, there's no doubt James would have been thinking of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It's a reference to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes were a series of statements that Jesus made. And he made these to show that God's economy is incredibly different than the world's economy. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed is the, are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So you see the correlation here with these blessed is statements in Matthew 5. And what James is saying is blessed is the one who endures trials. This type of thinking is incredibly backwards from the rest of the world. But if we would think this way and talk this way and act this way, it really would change the city around us. We said, man, blessed is the one who endures trials. What? That doesn't make sense. In God's economy, it does. I think it would have a tremendous amount on unbelievers around us if we handled trials this way. So James began our passage this morning with a command, right? Count it joy in the midst of trials. And here in verse 12, we get the promise of the reward. For those who faithfully live out the command, there's a crown on the other side of heaven. There's a crown for those who faithfully persevere through trials. Be really practical about our worldview and perspective and how it affects our trials. So if we spend all of our time and money and resources pouring into goals that are temporary, like money and materialism and all types of things that this world dangles in front of us, if we put all of our energy and time and thought into that, then... All of our trials will be seemingly devastating and goal-crushing. If this is the case, we can never count trials as joy. It will be impossible for you. If your goals are lined up with the goals of the world, you will not be able to count trials as a joy. However, if we work every day to remember that we're running a spiritual race, to borrow the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians... And at the end of the race is the ultimate goal, which is to be with God. Then our trials will only seem as a bump in the road on the way there. Except what James is saying is, hey, listen, they're really not even a bump in the road. The trials are actually the guide rails that are going to get you there. They're keeping you where you need to be. 
The trials are a blessing to help you run the race well. The trials are a blessing to help you lean on his wisdom, lean on his resources, and run the race well. Listen, trials are inevitable. Every one of us will experience trials. If you're in here this morning and you're just checking us out, if you haven't submitted your life to the King Jesus, I just want to be clear to you. There's no hope that I can offer you this morning in your trials right now. This this doesn't apply to you. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't trusted in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and submitted your life to his authority and are walking in obedience, I really don't have any hope for you today in this text. In fact, the best thing that I can tell you is I can warn you that the trials you experience now are only a fraction of the pain of hell if you don't repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It doesn't get any better. It only becomes far worse. If that's you today, please talk to somebody. The prayer room right here to my right and to your left, we have people that would love to talk to you. During this next song, I'll be right here on this front row. I would love to talk to you about how you can have hope in the midst of trials, how you can have eternal life because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you're a believer in here today, I hope that you'll take the command of James seriously, that you will seek to find joy in the midst of trials, that you'll reach deep into the truth of who God is and what his promises are and trust that he is doing amazing things that he has a purpose for your pain and find the joy amidst the grief. That he's teaching you to trust his wisdom, depend on his resources, and reach for heaven, the reward that is coming. I'm going to leave you just with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says it far more eloquently than I could. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal.